The following is a message from Reverend Ken Melvin of Wellsprings Congregation. So middle age, yeah. First time I became aware of the so-called midlife crisis was uh, through this in the early 1980s. Talking heads, once in a lifetime. If you remember that video, I love the that this is the clearest image we could get of this, as if it was literally taken from a photo from a television in 1981. First time I became familiar with this thing called midlife crisis or midlife. David Byrne, the singer, in words kind of like a preacher, sings this. I won't sing to you, but I'll read you some of these lyrics. And you may find yourself living in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself in another part of the world, and you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile, and you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife, and you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? And you may ask yourself, where is that large automobile? And you may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful house, and you may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful wife, and you may ask yourself, where does that highway go to? And you may ask yourself, am I right? Am I wrong? And you may say to yourself, my God, what have I done? (laughs) To a 12-year-old, that's the clearest thing in a midlife crisis I could understand back then. And really, it's just a re-articulation of the most famous midlife literature that there is. It's Dante's Divine Comedy. Inferno, Purgatory paradise. Opening with these words. In the middle of the journey of our life, I found myself within a dark woods where the straight path was lost. In the middle of the journey of our life, I found myself within a dark woods where the straight path was lost. Now, let's be clear about something as I, as I start this five-part message series on midlife. There is no one thing called a midlife crisis. It is not necessarily a universal experience. Indeed, for some folks in some cultures and some parts of the world, a midlife crisis would be a total luxury to experience. And there are regular, at the same time, there are regular touchstones of this part of life for so many of us. And so I intend this message series to be for those of us who are hoping one day to be midlife, those of us who already have been midlife, and those of us two hands in the air who are currently in midlife. Yeah, get them up there. All right. (laughs) Woo, woo. All right. I like to see that enthusiasm. So how to tell we're midlife? I mean, there's a kind of uh, actuarial approach to it. Are you somewhere between the ages of 40 and 60? I don't think that's the best way to, uh, to get into what really midlife is all about. There's the attitudinal way to discover that you are midlife. And sometimes it can arrive by, by way of this. That's something we may find ourselves saying to ourselves. Uh, kids today. Kids today, kids today, kids today, kids today. Say it with me if you've ever found yourself saying it. Kids today. Oh, you got to sigh. 
It's been going on forever, 32,000 years ago. Graffiti kids today have no respect. Midlife people have been saying this for a very, very long time. But even the attitudinal approach to understanding midlife isn't quite right. I think it's much more about finding ourselves in certain situations, in certain contexts and relationships, almost as if we are the, the meat in the generational sandwich. One side of the bread, the youngsters. The other side, our elders. Even more so, and I know this is particularly relevant for a number of you, We find raising our kids, hopefully helping them flourish and grow and become the beings who we hope they would be on the one side of life. And on the other side, parents, perhaps parents who are starting to decline in health or well-being and knowing some of the sadness and the rigor of that part of life. Psychologists have described midlife as what they call A liminal place. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. A liminal place. Liminality. It's just a way of saying we're not what we once were, but we don't quite know yet what we're going to be. Midlife is a between place. Now, being between stages of identity can happen for us all throughout life. It's just that when we find ourselves in midlife, there's a whole bunch of circumstances and scenarios in which we find this liminality, this betweenness coming up and up and up again with regularity. This is one of our core beliefs at Wellsprings, that each of us has the capacity, has the capacity of soul to be able to just like the caterpillar that knows that something is changing to enter into that place and that space of transformation in the cocoon, in the chrysalis, and grow into the butterfly that has always been contained within them. And yet, here's the thing. To go into cocoon or chrysalis living of the place of not what I once was and not yet what I'm going to be, that can be incredibly strange. That can be incredibly unfamiliar and yet still sacred, holy ground. That's what the talking heads were talking about. Is this my life? (laughs) If you know those moments, is this my life? And recognizing that maybe we've lived more days in the past, that we have days coming up with us in the future, that we're going to be on this earth. And hopefully, this is where the spiritual growth opportunity of midlife comes, in recognizing our betweenness, and recognizing our not quite knowing yet where we are bound, to not approach that unfamiliarity of our surroundings, and also the unfamiliarity of our feelings with judgmentalism. But simply to arrive at midlife knowing that maybe, and this is the growth opportunity, maybe life is not so obvious. Maybe we can say with humility, I don't have it all under control. And maybe if we believe we do have it all under control, that really what we're doing is we're walking around wearing these kind of blinders. And you say, everything I see right here, this is under my control. But you know what? Life is outside. (laughs) That is the spiritual growth opportunity and the opening of this deeper midlife awareness. Midlife can be brought on by a number of losses, both small and big. Some of the small ones that I know actually aren't so small for some of us. 
some of the small ones, like maybe recognizing the, the skin isn't quite as... <laughs> the skin isn't quite as, I don't know, vibrant as maybe it used to be, and it's looking a little wrinkly in some places. Or maybe we recognize that the, hmm, not that I'm worried about this one here, that the hair is starting to be lost where it once was, or maybe it's entirely gone. Or maybe agility, physical agility, mental agility, tough one to talk about, sexual agility, that maybe some of these things are starting to change. And then some of the big losses as well. The loss of a job you counted on. The loss of a love that once was important. The loss of a life that you still love so much. Getting fired, divorce, death. These are some of the tough losses of midlife. The challenge and the problem becomes when we decline the invitation to grow with and from these losses and these challenges at midlife. This is where the title of today's message comes from. And like so much of my thoughts, it comes from The Simpsons. Lisa, who's the seven-year-old, you know, far too precocious, really bright, uh, says at one point, you know, the, the Chinese have the, the same word for crisis and opportunity, which, by the way, people who actually speak Chinese tell me that's a totally like Western gloss of all the ambiguity that's contained in that word. It's not really real, but let's go with it for now. That crisis and opportunity is the same word in Chinese. And Homer, being the simple-minded creature that he is, says, yes, crisitunity. <laughs> so this is and can be a crisitunity time in so many of our lives. The crisis can come. We recognize that things are changing. We recognize that life is not as familiar as it used to be, and we don't have it all figured out, and we are becoming an I-don't-know-it-all. And instead of opening to that opportunity, we double down on past identity. We find ourselves being lost in nostalgia for who we were or who we thought we were, or lost in nostalgia for a type of life and form of life that is changing. The crisis comes when we judge our strangeness, when the unfamiliarity arises within us and around us, and we say, this is wrong. That sometimes, when the negative behaviors, when the harmful behaviors, when the addictive behaviors, when the compulsive behaviors, when the holding on to tight behaviors come up for us in midlife. And it's kind of like, ultimately, we're choosing to partake of a meal that even though it's been stamped upon it, it has an expiration date, as all forms of our identity do. We continue to drink it, or we continue to eat it. And we find somehow that life has grown spoiled for us. We can find at this time of life, in the times in which crisis may feel like it's enveloping us at midlife, that the worst demons we come to know are the angels that we could not let go. To say they were good for us at another point of our life, but they no longer fit how we are if we want to fly like the butterfly is intended to. But that's just one part. That's just the crisis part. There's also the opportunity part to engage fully this opportunity for chrysalis living, for cocoon living, to know the unfamiliarity and to embrace it. Change, growth, risk, faith-making, to accept what Anne Mora Lindbergh called 
the winged life, the insecure life, a life of true freedom and growth. One of my most favorite guides, and I'll regularly return to him as a touchstone throughout this message series, is a guy named Richard Rohr. Some of you might know, I've talked about him before. He's so progressive. He's a Franciscan friar. I don't know how he stays within the Catholic Church, and yet he does. He does, and he's helping the church grow. He's amazing. He's one of my guides in this life. He talks about, in his wonderful book, Falling Upward. Falling Upward. <laughs> Love that. Part of, I think, growing in, in midlife is accepting that so much of truth is paradox. <laughs> is two truths don't cancel each other out, but help us grow into a place that we could not anticipate yet. Falling upward, his theology for two halves of life. He says in the first half of life, and by the way, none of this is bad, none of this is sinful, none of this is wrong. It's just that we spend a lot of time climbing the ladder. We spend a lot of time kind of focusing on the outward self, a lot of time focusing on what we can get, and a lot of time focusing on how we're succeeding. And Richard Rohr says it's all necessary, and I absolutely agree. Because part of the paradox here is that only those people who have cultivated a strong ego are then able to successfully transcend that ego. That is a paradox. And so he shares some of the questions of the transition between the first half of life and the second half of life. And again, these first questions he shared are not evil or wrong. They're just not all of life. And if we stay stuck with them, especially as we move into the second half of life, we will stay on the surface of things. We will live a superficial, appearance-based life. He writes, in the first half of life, it's all about me. How can I be important? How can I be safe? How can I make money? How can I look attractive? And, to my fellow Christians, I would say, how can I think well of myself and go to heaven? How can I be on the high moral ground? These are all ego questions. They are not questions beckoned by the soul. And he continues, I'm sad to say, I think many of my fellow Christians have never moved beyond these survival and security questions. He continues into the second half of life, the invitation of the second half of life, by saying, only God, grace, can move us into the second half of life. However, religion and spirituality becomes a much more mystical matter rather than merely the moral matter of justifying how right we are. In the second half of life, it can become about union, about participation in and with this journey of ever deeper and ever broader union of life with life. I'm under no illusions, and I think many of us are not under the illusion either, that moving away from the dominant questions of this culture how successful are you? How much are we paying attention to the people who really seem to be achieving what the culture esteems? The famous people, the celebrity culture. Those are first half of life kind of questions and first half of life kind of heroes. To move away and apart from these questions can make us uncomfortable. Because we start to question the dominant narratives and stories of our lives in this culture, which is that it's always about onward, always about upward, always making progress. But really, the invitation of this life, this second half of life, as Richard Rohr says, is to 
know that in the first half of life, we focus a lot on the outer container. (laughs) What's the shape of the outer life? In the second half of life, we get the privilege and the gift of asking ourselves, what's inside the container? What are our deepest values? How do we get in touch with our broken hearts? And how can we, even in the midst of brokenness, find that deeper wholeness? Questioning the narrative of the linear and straight and seemingly always upward path of this culture of success and promotion and thinking that these things, not bad, not wrong necessarily, but thinking that these things will give us happiness. It's learning to step away from this story and to be willing in the middle of life to meander for a bit. To be willing in the middle of this life to take a journey that we cannot always know where it will land us. It is to seek out, this is the great opportunity, the blessings of unfamiliarity, the blessings of strangeness, the blessings of, is this my life? (laughs) The blessings of, my God, what have I done? This is to redefine our lives in some radical and amazing ways. It is like uh, to take one of those journeys, like... um, Remember City Slickers from a number of years ago? Kind of middle of the road, fun movie. You know, and that's what midlife is kind of about. Well, I did that literally, but it wasn't like City Slickers and it didn't have all the one-liners. But I did that to intentionally enter my midlife about now coming up on three years ago. When I went on an eight-day outward bound hike quest, finding yourself, creating your soul, all that kind of stuff in the middle of the North Carolina woods. I've talked about it before, but today I want to talk about someone else's experience, not my experience. It was a person who was, I think, in her mid-50s. I was one of the younger people when I was 41 on that Outward Bound excursion. And on the third day, just at the point at which it had stopped being fun, (laughs) just the point at which we were cold and wet, and it's not easy as a midlife person to admit you're really, really homesick, It was at that point on that day in the middle of a grueling hike when it was pouring down rain us that she chose to sit down by the side of the trail and put her hands around her head and sob. I can't do this. I shouldn't be here. And you know, there's no telling anyone to get out of that state. All we did was sit with her. We sit with her and said, we're not going to abandon you here. And you see, what she was crying about wasn't the physical rigor. Well, maybe that was 10% of it, because that made me want to cry as well, too. What she was crying about is the reason she had come on this excursion in the first place, like so many of us, is that life wasn't quite what she expected it to be. She was dealing with the depression, with the sadness in her own heart that wasn't quite loosening over the years. She was dealing with an adult child who didn't seem to be thriving. She was dealing with a job that didn't fit her soul. Tough stuff. Midlife stuff. The I don't think I can do this was about much more than the course. But I must tell you, that moment of sitting and collapsing and crying... And knowing that others were around her, four days later on the seventh day, when we climbed the rock wall together, and not a gym rock wall, a real mountain rock wall, 
And she didn't even climb the highest point. But when she came down off of hanging on that rock wall at the top of a mountain where you could see down into the valley 4,000 feet below, she came off that mountain with the broadest smile possible. Because what she started to recognize in herself is that, yes, her life was her life. And yes, it had its pains and its unfamiliarity and its strangeness. And yes, she could face it. I've stayed in touch with my friend now. And I'm so happy to report to you that now, in the midst of all the same life and all the same stuff that was going on before, she is planning out in about 75-mile increments of how she will hike all of the Appalachian Trail before she dies. This is one of the, the best things about being midlife, is our definition of who our heroes are change. <laughs> in the first half of life, so many of I know my heroes were people who did great things, big things, sometimes ego things. But in the second half of life, my heroes are those people who know sadness, who know loss, who know grief, who know addiction, who know recovery, who know that life is not easy and still cultivate a heart and a soul that is willing to face what is there. Those are heroes. We know it's not easy to wake up one day and look at our life with fresh eyes, because that means we're going to see things we don't always like. <laughs> but here's the wonderful part. When we stop seeing our lives by rote, even as the world appears strange, that's an invitation. An invitation to grow a soul. It is like the talking head song. Is this my life? My God, what have I done? Am I right? Am I wrong? Those are the ways in the second half of life that we keep our lives growing and flowing and the soul continuing to emerge. Because when for all of us life stops being obvious, then life can become re-enchanted again. Life can become magical again. That's the beginning of grappling. I mean that, grappling with the blessings of midlife. I think of one of my favorite stories from the Hebrew Scriptures of Jacob wrestling with what's sometimes called a, a man or an angel or the angel of God. This is one particular artistic rendering of it. And Jacob and the angel rest, wrestle all night long. I mean, this is dirty. This is smelly. This is getting down into our lives. And Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. I will not let you go until you bless me. A soulful midlife is learning to say this to our lives. To know that in the grappling is the blessing. To know that this is, as Richard Rohr said, a falling upward. Because really what he's talking about in a falling upward is falling in love. Except maybe in the second half of life it's less about falling in love with a particular person or a particular object, although that still may happen. It's about falling in love with life itself. And if we remember or know what falling in love is like, it is many things, and it is profoundly disorienting. <laughs> it opens us up. It encourages us to see life differently. It encourages me to get back in touch with something that I learned as a practice when I was 26 or something. I had a Zen teacher once who, who, who said, this is a practice you can use to work with uncertainty. I've shared some of this with you before. 
Breathe in and say to yourself inwardly, silently, breathe in, what am I? And then breathe out, don't know. (laughs) Breathe in, what am I? Breathe out, don't know. And I got to tell you, the me who was radically underdeveloped as a human being at 26 years old and thought he was real, real smart and in fact was pretty damn stupid, it was entirely an intellectual exercise. Stupid in the way of wisdom, I mean, the important ways of being stupid. Not I knew a lot of stuff, but that was totally an intellectual exercise, and I didn't get it. But me, who's about to turn 44, breathe in, what am I? Breathe out, don't know. I think that's the first taste of real freedom, (laughs) deep, sustaining freedom about the life of the soul that I'm getting in this life. So what am I? What are we? What are you? (sighs) I don't know. See, when we exhale, it's like, oh, it's okay. It's all right, I don't know. (laughs) To say that is to know the beginning of the pilgrimage of soul, the beginning of and the continuation of the path of discovery, of risk. Not of faith having, like sometimes people may ask you, do you have faith? Which is some kind of content that we think we can bottle up and wear in our sleeve and say, yes, here I have my faith. It makes no difference to me, but I have it. But instead of faith having, to enter this time of life, whether it's coming up for us, or whether it's past for us, or whether two hands in the air again, we're in the midst of it right now, to discover this as the realm of faith-making, the kind of faith that can guide us into a life of wholeness, belonging, and true love. Amen? And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of all the ages, of the limitless ages of our being and becoming, God of the cocoon and chrysalis moments. God of the uncertain moments. God of the sacred unknowing and unlearning that opens us up to the life that is yet to be and still forming within us. May our lives take on the forms, the many forms of blessedness by continuing with humility and vulnerability to return and return and return again to a life always waiting for us, to a life beckoning us, to a life, yes, sometimes strange and unfamiliar, but to a life charged full with the charge of the soul. Amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.